a reading from the novel tracks by Anishinaabe author Louise Erdrich. We started dying before the snow, and like the snow, we continued to fall. It was surprising there were so many of us left to die. For those who survived the spotted sickness from the south, our long fight west to the Nadwa Sioux land where we signed the treaty, and a wind from the east bringing exile in a storm of government papers, what descended from the north in 1912 seemed impossible. By then, we thought disaster must surely have spent its force. The disease must have claimed all of the Anishinaabe that the earth could hold and bury. But the earth is limitless, and so is luck, and so were our people once. Granddaughter, you are the child of the invisible, the ones who disappeared when, along with the first bitter punishments of early winter, a new sickness swept down. Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. This week we are talking about episode 105, Elements. And here's your summary. Pete and Micah investigate an impossible art theft. Claudia pushes a struggling Joshua to take control of his life, and Artie and Lena argue about how best to handle Claudia and Joshua's newfound awareness of the warehouse, its secrets, and its operations. Yes. So, I would also like to note that Jill and I had a very long and heartfelt talk before we turned on our microphones about the issues with Native American representation and cultural appropriation that are dealt with in this episode and very imperfectly done. Um, So we have a Lenape guest artifact expert to help us through that today. And then we also are just going to be really honest about not being Native people and about how important it is to learn from past imperfect representations and take the opportunity to listen to Native voices when something like this makes us ask ourselves like oh is that really a Lenape belief is that really uh, a history that you have the rights to adapt or play with so yeah I, I don't want to not have a fun episode of podcast 13 but I also want everyone to you know be aware and be self monitoring about what you do and don't know and what what is worth your time to learn more about I agree. Nothing to add. Thank you for that. I know that you have a writer's corner to start us off. I do. For this week's writer's appreciation, we have another many hands involved episode. So this is a story by Dana or Dana Barada. I have no guidance on how to pronounce that. I'm sorry if I butchered it. And Jack Kenny. And the teleplay, so the actual script part, was written by Jack Kenny and David Simpkins. Now, we've talked about two of these people before, David Simpkins and Jack Kenny, so our newcomer is Dana or Dana Barada. She is a very accomplished writer whose first credit was a screenplay in 1994 called Andre. Have not seen it, but she then immediately went on to work on Dawson's Creek and move up from simple staff writer credits and written by credits to co-producer, co-executive producer, consulting producer kind of credits. Most recently has worked on Jessica Jones, which I believe Jack Kenny has also worked on. Um, Other notable titles are Private Practice, 
the studio, Pasadena, Dawson's Creek, of course. Uh, so yeah, she's been involved with a lot, and it looks like she was involved with Warehouse 13 for a while, which I think is pretty cool. One note about the kind of episodes like this where there are a lot of hands involved, I think that at this stage in this show, they don't necessarily indicate a quality episode, but I don't want that to put off any listeners from enjoying episodes of television that have a different story by and teleplay by credit or a lot of writers in them. I think especially of a lot of episodes in the seventh season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which had multiple writers on them. I think the difference here is that the writers haven't had a lot of time to get to know the characters and get to know each other. So I think something that we'll find going forward in this episode, and Miranda can totally disagree with me if she thinks I'm wrong here, but I think one of the things that we'll find going forward is that we see a lot of different voices trying to push who they think the characters are at us without getting one clear, cohesive vision. So while this episode may not be any of the writer-involved best work, we still think that Dana Barata is a very good and welcome addition to Warehouse 13. Yes, that's a perfect way of saying what I would agree with about your point with many writers is that this happened in the pilot and it happened in this episode where it just seems that the episode has not fully found its way. Like, the characters aren't super consistent. There may be some just, like, writing oversights because when you have a lot of chefs in the kitchen like it actually happens that something gets forgotten or something doesn't get addressed because everyone thinks someone else is going to do it and you also never know if they have all these writers on hand because the network got involved and made a lot of last minute notes so there was a script written but then they had to make all these changes so they handed it off to another writer there's just no way to know with these things so don't be too hard on the individual writers for that situation Awesome. So should we dive into the episode? Let's dive right in. We begin with a Chiron on Manhattan Island 400 years ago. And there is some sort of Native American ceremony taking place. We see the elements being invoked. Um, and the, the language to me is unclear. And the expert I consulted did not watch the episode so I was not able to ask him. So if you are a Native American language speaker or a linguist or someone who might know, please let us know. But there is a translation of the language that says, when he comes, let these elements be his strength and hope. Um, so a few things that I would point out about this. One is that I learned from an amazing podcast called Metis in Space, that's M-E-T-I-S in Space, which is a Canadian indigenous tribe. Um, this podcast is two Metis, Metis women talking about indigenous representation in science fiction. And one of the things that they always point out in, and I think this is a direct quote, is that no matter whether your culture has flutes or not, there will be flutes in the Native American scene of the sci-fi show, which is not untrue. Um, so listen to this background music. Again, I didn't ask our scholar about flute music in the Lenape culture or practice, but it is a stereotype. And because of that, 
uh, we usually wait until we reveal the artifact to introduce our guest, but I just wanted to begin by handing it over to our expert to at least tell us um, who he is and who the Lenape people are. My name is uh, Dr. John Norwood, and I uh, am a member of the Tribal Council of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape Tribal Nation and also the Principal Justice of that tribe's Supreme Court. Uh, I am a historian among my people um, and have done research into the tribe's history. Um, I also represent the tribe at national functions as a delegate to the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, and I serve as the, the General Secretary for the Alliance of Colonial Era Tribes, which is an organization of tribes that have colonial treaties, colonial uh, uh, land grants and dealings, uh, and are on the eastern and southern coast of the United States. The Lenape are the are called the grandfathers or the ancient ones uh, because there are so many tribes, uh, Algonquian speaking tribes, that uh, whose history comes from us. They view themselves as descending from us, and our own history, our own legends speak of that descent. Interestingly enough, uh, the Nanticoke are one of the tribes that came from the Lenape, and then during the uh, colonial period, many rejoined the Lenape. Uh, my tribe uh, is from the Delaware Bay region, uh, near the southern border of the Lenape territory and the northern border of the Nanticoke territory, and our families have been intermarrying for many generations, a couple of hundred years at least. Um, the Lenape territory extends from southwestern Connecticut, southeastern New York, uh, all of New Jersey, uh, the eastern portion of Pennsylvania along the Delaware River, down into northern Delaware, swooping into Cape Henlopen. And um, around, we, we are a tribe of first contact. Uh, so many uh, settlements were in our territory uh, as early as the 1600 settlements of European colonists. Uh, we received and uh, had struggles with the Dutch. We, uh, the Swedes uh, set up their new Sweden colony in our territory, and we have a continuing relationship with them. And then finally, the British. Uh, by about 1740, um, the majority of Lenape people were pushed westward. Uh, those of us who remained uh, remained in New Jersey in small clusters. Those that were pushed west and eventually, and some eventually north, wound up uh, out in Oklahoma. There are Lenape tribes in Oklahoma, and because of their dealings during that migration with the United States government and the, and the uh, uh, at the time, Department of, of War, pushing and pushing on them, they are federally uh, acknowledged tribes. Those that went north wound up, uh, there are some of our people that are in Wisconsin, that are part of the Stockbridge community up there, and then many wound up in Canada, and there are Lenape communities in Canada. Uh, the British called us Delaware. Those of us who stayed in New Jersey never embraced the name. Some who migrated away did and also called themselves Delaware. So we will be consulting Dr. Norwood many times throughout the episode as there are more and more specific references to Lenape practices and stories. Co-signed. <laughs> yes. So then where do we go, Jill? 
so after this flashback, we <laughs> are in NYC in the present day, and we see someone wearing a magic cloak, which I am not saying in a disrespectful way. I just have no other way to describe it. It is a twinkly magic cloak, and someone is using it to move through walls into an indeterminate place where artifacts are kept. And for the sake of our listeners, I mean actual art and history artifacts, not Warehouse 13 artifacts, um, and steals a metal sculpture thing and walks right out through the wall again. And that's exactly what I said. It's a sparkling cloak. I thought probably an art thief. And that's just the sort of tease that we get about what is going on this episode. Yeah, my brain couldn't comprehend where there would be art like that that's also just sort of in piles. Like, I could, my brain couldn't immediately come up with a point of reference of what that was, but it is an auction house location. Yes, that's helpful um, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a similar question when I couldn't figure out where we were later. So meanwhile, at the warehouse, Pete and Micah are having a discussion, but they're interrupted by Claudia and Joshua bickering. They're really siblings going at it. And Artie pulls a dad by dragging Claudia away and telling her basically not to go to her room, but to go to her room. Like, yeah, go do your work. I want to see, and it's, I'm sure, some sort of computer programming joke. Like, every backslash, like, go go do that for me because you messed up my warehouse. And Claudia, teenage daughters him right back, as she stomps up the stairs, she peeks back down, which, like, I definitely used to do, <laughs> yelling back at him, showing her displeasure. So I think it's really great just showing the continued story that Claudia and Joshua are not gone and that they still have this really fun dynamic between all three of them, um, Artie and Claudia and Joshua. Yes, and the specific line I thought was pretty funny and very well written, so kudos to whichever person was responsible for it. He goes, go rewire whatever you unwired. And she goes, I'd like to unwire you, and storms off, which is just so teen. <laughs> it's so teen. And also for anyone tracking the purple versus orange thing, which I've actually gotten texts from people about saying that they like it, I would just like to note that... We see Claudia dancing on that edge. She's not wearing purple in this scene, but she wears purple later, and the streaks in her hair have gone from pink to purple. So it signals like, yeah, she's dangerous and edgy and cool, but we can trust her, which I think definitely tracks with both our color theory and the way that we actually are seeing her in the show. And yes, I noticed that right away. It looks really good because when she had the pink streak, I think this is also just sort of about being disheveled or not. The pink streak was really faded, indicating that she was not taking time for herself. She was super immersed in saving Joshua. And now she's like gone to Hot Topic and got that purple dye um, and she's recolored it and it's nice and, you know, put together. Agreed. I've had a couple notes about that scene uh, because Artie goes back and talks to Pete and Micah. Uh, he was showing them a picture of the sculpture that was stolen and was saying, this is interesting to us because it's impossible that it could have been stolen and a few visual notes i will post in the show notes the picture i am able to find but there was a really pretty picture just sitting outside of that dining room area of like a woman 
whose face was made of like tree branches and flowers. And I was wondering if that was anything or if it meant something. But also the lighting was really nice and kind of surreal and very natural lighting, which I really enjoyed. And then in terms of actual plot, Micah is expressing concern that this just seems like a well-executed art theft. It doesn't really scream warehouse. And he has a funny line that says, well, not everything screams warehouse. It normally just says, something's a little odd and Pete laughs and gets it immediately because Pete and Artie are simpatico but Micah also laughs and like sort of winks at him and I just enjoyed that whole dynamic. I also enjoyed uh right at the beginning of that they show the picture of obviously modern art sculpture and uh, and Pete looks at it and goes, an artifact did that? (laughs) Because it looks like it has holes and and stuff in it. Um, Which just cracked me up because I love all art, but I also do not understand modern art. I am pretty much with Pete. Um, So, (laughs) yes, I'm sure it's beautiful, but I'm a pre-Raphaelite girl myself. (laughs) Um, Which is the most opposite of modern art. So, the other funny thing is that you mentioned Micah's enjoyable banter with Artie and Artie mumbles something saying the last time he was wrong was June of 1987. Yes. And Micah really wants to know, but he refuses to tell her. Um, And then last thing about the scene before we go out to theme music is Pete asks if they can get show tickets while they're there. (laughs) Pete likes theater now. (laughs) I mean, he likes NYC. It's a part of the culture there. That's just really cool that this beefy man is like you know what i want to do see a show like he contains multitudes he does uh with that we roll the opening theme song yep and then we're back for act well yeah act two and i would like to explain this because this is the issue that i had trouble describing i said we go to new york where the vault attendant (laughs) <laughs> I wrote I wrote that too. I called her hot lady of indeterminate job description. <laughs> yes. So we go to New York where an attractive woman is showing us to a vault and telling Pete and Micah that yes, there is an electronic vault um, security system and it says the vault was never opened. So we, we get the information we need shortly after this about the auction house and everything, but it is kind of confusing that we don't know where we are. Yeah, she knows stuff about art, and it doesn't seem like she's an unimportant player in this auction world, but like they didn't feel it was at all important to give us a description of any kind. <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, so Micah speculates as the vault attendant uh, steps and has them turn away and not look at her opening the vault that maybe this was an inside job and then Pete makes a comment about, yeah, the vault attendant bears scrutiny, kind of like <laughs> looking at her legs. I just wrote, Micah watches Pete try to flirt and then fail at flirting. And I like that she's coming up with her own dynamic to deal with it. When it's harmless, she provides color commentary. There was a weird line. She says, she's out of your league. And he says, how would you know my, what my league is? And she says, well, not that I asked, but I got season tickets. And I was like, mm, that line could have been clear. Like, that's one of the things that they tell you, especially when you're writing comedy, is comedy is funnier when it's more specific. It took me a while to suss that line out. I still don't get it. Is Micah in Pete's league? That's what I thought it was at first, but 
that just doesn't make sense for like what's happening and like the grammar of the sentence. What I think she's saying is, I see you flirt all the time. I'm pretty sure I see who's in your league. Oh, season tickets. Like she's a spectator to his game. Yeah. Which he's bad at. Oh, man. Okay. I was really confused by it too because I think Micah is out of Pete's league, (laughs) TBH. I might be biased. I mean, I think they're in each other's league. I don't think either is. I mean, I don't know. I don't really care. They're fine. They're they're both fine-looking people. They're um, both very pretty people. Yes. Uh, Micah calls woman of indeterminate job description skirt girl. Not great. Yeah, but, you know, she's just making her banter. She's in her one-of-the-guys mode. I mean. Yeah. She copes how she copes. We've discussed her feminist rage at length before. That's true. But yeah, and basically she she does draw her line when she's trying to get information and she sees him flirting and she's like, you got to go. Go look at one of the interested parties that she said was interested in the sculpture. And then she's like, because you can't do your job and be on a date at the same time. And he has also learned and is like, okay, I'm not going to push it. I'm going to go do the thing. Um, and then she's like, okay, and if we finish early, then you can find a way to take her out. So, so I like that, yes. how that dynamic's growing. They're learning to appreciate and deal with things that they previously found really clash-worthy. And I will just say that that you can't do your job and be on a date at the same time is going to kind of come back to Micah a little bit later in the episode. And also calling back to something Jill said in our episode 103 it's never good when Pete and Micah split up. Um, they work better together. And so even though Micah is doing this because um, it's clear that Pete is interested in the attractive woman and possibly Micah picked up that the woman might be interested in him too. I don't know. She's like, no, this is not going to be as productive as possible. Um, and that's a really good reason. But we like them when they're together. We learned in episode 103 that Artie wants them instinct and observation combined not separate agreed um but but i do think that for an early stage interview like this if they're gonna be separate that's the time true true because it's this is just reconnaissance right now yes so pete goes to visit one of the two interested parties gilbert radburn yes at a construction site of his new building and it's a huge construction uh, zone. Pete makes a really interesting thematic remark. Uh, he relates stealing in the way that like New York land grabbers do to conquering. He says sometimes it's not about stealing, it's about conquering. And I thought immediately of one, the, the stealing being colonizers stealing land from indigenous people, and two, the conquering being another word we might associate not always with Native American colonization but definitely with Latin American colonization of by Spain and European countries that there's definitely something that I think one one writer at least was trying to sprinkle in thematically here and may or may not actually get like brought out to fruition but is interjected early on yes as a side note, I just want to bring up a recurring question. It's becoming one of my favorite things when they go to interview people about re- 
ridiculous topics and then they go why does the secret service care about this and then they have to scramble to come up with the reason absolutely and while pete is doing this interview i'm sorry to say we see a racially ambiguous construction worker with a sign that says ground penetrating radar and suspicious music plays so i don't know if it's just the film language that is making me uncomfortable here but it's almost, it's, or maybe it's because of the intro where we know there's something Native American happening, um, where we see this man, and honestly, I don't know the ethnicity of the actor, and I don't think Pete is necessarily racially profiling. I think he's more interested in the big sign that says ground penetrating radar. And also the guy is staring right at him, like stopped and staring at him, and that is going to make you stare back but i think the guy is staring at him because we get this like slow-mo like uh-oh sort of film effect i don't think that actually in the interaction it's as obvious as this film language makes us believe i also think it's like a minor vibe like something in p is just registering this is important take a note you know what you're right we could say that more likely what is happening is that Pete has a vibe that something is not fully above board with this guy, which is true. It's not untrue. Um, I, honestly, I just didn't pay attention to who was lingering on looking at who because I found the guy attractive. And so I was like, I'm fine with this shot. Keep it going. <laughs> the actor's name is Caleb Verzaiden. And yes, he is an attractive man. Yeah. And we will be putting a special link in the show notes, so uh, keep an eye out for that. It will be clearly labeled. Yes, if you want a real treat, which includes cute images of Caleb Verzaiden, you can look forward to our show notes. Jill will write them for you. Yes. Um, so moving forward, Pete gets a call from Micah with a great line that I was then immediately disappointed by. She goes, you're never going to believe this. I smell fudge. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then it turns out that was just, it was metaphorical fudge. There was no smelling of actual fudge. Wait, really? I thought there really was a smell of no, fudge. That was just, let's see, that's the unclear writing I was talking about. Like, okay. I feel like there might've been fudge at some point in some draft, but then they were like, it doesn't work here. Take it out. And they're like, we're leaving the line though. Oh, man, I thought that the feather smelled like fudge just because we are led to believe that artifacts smell like fudge. It's like because none of the other artifacts smell like fudge. But maybe only some artifacts smell like fudge. It's only episode five. It's true. We have more information. (laughs) I just had the best idea, which is if you would like one of our Patreon tiers to be that I make and send you fudge, you just say the word on Twitter that you want fudge And I have a good fudge recipe. You got to make that with marshmallow cream. That's where it's at. Let me know. Yeah, it sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) So no fudge, but Micah has found something. Do you want to talk about this? Yes. And Pete shows up and we see something, I mean, impossible for lack of a better word. There is a feather halfway lodged in a wall as if it's like a sword. Yes. And importantly, it is glittery especially when Micah takes it out with her glove, it seems to, like they tell us, interact with human touch. And this means that Pete 
wants to touch it to see what it can do because he does not have the neutral purple gloves on. And I love how concerned Micah gets about Yes, I wrote that too. She does such a good job showing her concern and reluctance to let him touch it. But Pete does such a good job too responding to her concerns in the exact way one should respond to a person like Micah's concerns. Instead of saying, I'll be fine, which she would disagree with and then not let him do the thing, he quotes... Artifact behavior usually requires a human element. Like, he has memorized that. Which is clearly what Artie said, or Mrs. Frederick. Like, he is quoting the rules, air quotes, because he knows that's what Micah responds to. Yeah, and then she goes, okay, and is worried, but then trusts the situation. Which I just, I loved that. I love those moments in their partnership. Yes, so once he takes it, there's more glittering and a little bit of a flute trill, as mentioned previously. Pete's instincts really are good, where he's got this feather and he like knows through his vibes and instinctive nature that it was in the wall and he's going to try sticking it through the wall again, um, which he does and shows us that this allows you from our experience right now, to walk through walls, we get a more scientific description later. But also, we see Micah's great observation come through, which is where we see that strength of them coming together. She noticed the sparkles and shimmers only go up to his elbow, so she Mm. pinches right above his elbow, and she goes, ah, yes, I just, I realized something. And she goes, what, that pinching causes pain? And she's like, no, 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 I knew that. Like, she just brushes right past it. And then she realizes... If the feather only works up to the elbow, she realizes it must have come from something larger that allows a whole body to pass through large objects like that. Yes, and this is an important realization. Now, the other funny thing is that Pete, at the end of this scene, is being his jokey self, and he's like, oh, what are we looking for, an art-stealing bird that walks through walls? And Pete and Micah both, invoking Artie, say, never rule anything out. (laughs) Which is really funny to me um honestly in this world yeah never rule that out and then actually Artie calls on the Farnsworth and they tell them their theory so far and Pete makes the same joke like unless it's like an art stealing bird and Artie like super seriously goes never rule anything out and then like hangs up (laughs) (laughs) and Micah and Pete look at each other approvingly like yeah we nailed that we did Yeah, it's like when you're back in school and you can perfectly imitate a teacher and like the way they assign (laughs) homework and you're like, oh my god. So they on the Farnsworth show the feather to Artie who immediately says that it looks Native American. And this is actually where I would like to insert a clip from our expert because Dr. Norwood has a description of particularly the feather headdress being something that he describes as pan-Indian, which means sometimes people conflate a bunch of different cultures that are absolutely different from each other. Um, So many people rely on kind of a pan-Indian understanding of culture. Uh, You know, and when I say pan-Indian, I mean cultural traditions that are shared among many different uh, tribes, but um, some of them are not ancient. Uh, they, they uh, among among every tribe over the past, I'd say maybe 75 years or so, maybe a little longer. Uh, there's been the, the the rise of 
uh, a powwow culture in trying to reaffirm native ways uh the the powwow circuit which allows different tribes to come together celebrating uh native culture began and actually it was it was restarted it's an ancient thing that started that actually is a is an eastern tribal tradition but the modern powwow um became popularized again in the west and came back east and with it came a a lot of traditions and stories that weren't necessarily eastern weren't necessarily from the extreme western coast but was almost a hodgepodge with um various cultural elements coming together in it so and people that simply know the powwow culture of many who are non-native think that that's indian culture and it's not it's kind of like sharing at, a, at the united nations where individual tribes may have very different views of, and very different practices. It's kind of like the teepee thing. Every time you see somebody portraying an American uh, Indian uh, tribal uh, regalia, you'll, you often see the Western Plains uh, headdress and them living in a teepee, even if they're here in New Jersey. We never had either. Our, our homes were, were wigwams and longhouses, and we did not have the big Western Plains headdress. If we had feathered headdresses, uh, they, they tended to be upright feathers, and it, it was part uh, influenced by the terrain we were in. That big western headdress would have gotten caught up in branches and everything else out here in the woodlands. Yeah, I think everything he said is really important. I know that people are very about accuracy, and so yes, I'm aware that this did not come from a headdress, but the principle still stands. It was on a cloak. Um, it would still get caught in just as many things. But also, I was just bothered by that line in general. Like, how the heck can you tell if a feather comes from a Native American thing? Birds are everywhere. Like, that just bothered me. That seemed like a leap that didn't make sense. And I think that was a more pan-Indian, pan-Native problem in itself. Yes, and that's exactly what I had written, is that Pete's suggestion of the feather coming from a bird is a joke but is far more logical than assuming that a feather came from something Native American. The other thing that we have to point out here is that Pete says he thinks he can rule out the first guy he spoke to because, quote, he could outbid Donald Trump. I know. Uh, uh, there were so many Donald Trump comparisons. I wrote, Donald Trump comparisons, too strong, can't discuss. But yeah, they talk about um, the second guy who is interested in the stolen sculpture. And his name is Jeff Weaver, who already immediately knows is the son of someone called Alexander Weaver, who was, and I quote, an extortionist, a real estate swindler, and a ravisher of cultures. I will leave current political comparisons up to the listener. And I also wrote, one could argue that the warehouse is being a ravager of culture right now. Yes. Wow, Jillian. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Again, just leaving it out there for the listeners, just, uh... But you are right, in the same way that many, not all, but many museums, especially historically museums in Britain and other colonial powers, what's the word, have not treated artifacts in the way that real cultural objects and significant works of art or society or spiritual practice are supposed to be treated. I agree. And I think this is where we run into another problem specifically with this being an indigenous or native artifact we're usually okay with the eurocentric artifacts being boxed up in the warehouse 
But from the outset, we have this knowledge that whatever this is, this is a native artifact, and it's now going to end up in the warehouse, and I'm not sure that that is the right call at all from the start. If something is being stolen by a non-member of a culture, the solution isn't for another non-member to steal it too, it's to give it back to the correct culture. And another important point on this topic is that the warehouse itself is complicit in the dislocation of Native American people. So for thousands and thousands of years, the South Dakota Badlands, like most of North America, was the land of indigenous people. And then the people who settled there in around the 1700s included the Cheyenne, Kiowa, Pawnee, Crow, and Sioux, or Lakota tribes. Um, and then according to an article that I'll link in the show notes, about 150 years ago, the Sioux Nation displaced those other tribes and became really the ruling Native American group in that area. But of course, they were eventually challenged and supplanted by French settlers. And then, you know, the United States took its course as it does in terms of uprooting Native people and taking Native land. So that's really important to think about, that the warehouse literally is not on land that belongs to the United States government anyways. And then we go out. We go out on a box. It goes shoop, shoop, shoop. And when we return, we're back at the warehouse where Claudia is being so cool. I have so many notes about this scene. She is working on the power grid and like it goes boom majorly just sparks large amounts of sparks um and she's wearing these big black gloves and goggles and um and she's really chill about it but meanwhile lena is sitting nearby and that's what this scene is really about yes i wrote that lena is effectively babysitting claudia um and claudia is very aware of it but also Miranda knows I'm very empathetic, and sometimes it seems, especially when I'm close to someone, as if I can read their minds. As someone who's similarly empathetic, but in a less supernatural way, Lena using her empath powers on Claudia, which makes Claudia uncomfortable. Always ask before reading people, because you can easily make them really uncomfortable. I was like, she should know. Like, as anyone who's super empathetic should know. But what I noticed is that Claudia is resistant and sarcastic and just wants to dismiss Lena's ability until they get to the end. So Claudia's life's work is not com- is is complete. So now she's purposeless and she wants Joshua to accomplish great things to justify her sacrifice. But then Lena says, "You're afraid of being alone." And that's when Claudia is like, "Okay, you can't have just gotten that out of nowhere like you actually see through me and I actually think that that's where Claudius uh, or Alison Scagliotti's uh, facial expression shows that she is more open to Lena than she was letting on you know and I also think that Lena just said it as a statement of fact I did I didn't read it as Claudia being skeptical I read it as her being used to therapy and used to it having to go to some place or come with not a judgment because therapy doesn't come with judgment if we have people who are worried about going to therapy that's not how it works but you know an evaluation to see what can be improved and 
all this other stuff that you just don't want to get into with everyone if that makes sense it's kind of a personal thing and she has experience in a psych ward she knows like what a therapist would say and you can just not be in the mood for that sometimes but this was that same sort of acknowledgement of feelings but going in a different direction like she's just leaving it out there you are afraid to be alone this is a statement of fact it really hits home for Claudia she starts to tear up a little bit and then they have a really cute interaction and Claudia goes it's okay if I don't like you right and Lena goes of course but you do and (laughs) I know and then they both sort of smile and then continue silently doing their thing she's like I'm still gonna babysit you and they're like okay I'm still gonna do my work is the silent communication there that's the Lena that I know and love where when we first introduce her we think okay she's a B&B host she's very beautiful she's very feminine she makes tea and cooks the meals and like I don't know how I feel about this but then that's like not really her job at all. Like, she just happens to own the B&B. Also, does she cook the meals, or does she just magic them up? We don't know. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, <laughs> so she she does these caregiving things, but she is not at all a stereotypical caregiver. She is so strong in her knowledge and self-confidence, and when she, like gives a little smirk and walks away from Claudia like you do like you see that she is aware of her power and her ability to use it for the good of you know I mean for the greater good generally so it's awesome and I do like it like her saying to Claudia you're afraid to be alone shows a really deep understanding of someone's darker inner thoughts Whereas her saying, I know you like me, also shows the lighter side of that, which I really liked. It's like, listen, like, yeah, I can read you like a book, but that doesn't mean I'm always reading, like, the worst chapter. Yeah, definitely. Um, So after that, we go to Pete and Micah visiting their second um, person of interest, Mr. Weaver, Jeff Weaver. And they think that they see the artifact right away. But it's a different sculpture. In the same series of which there are four total sculptures. Yes. And the joke here is so good. First of all, again, that no one understands or that Pete and Micah don't understand modern art. And the guy is like, uh, that's not the one you're looking for. This one is fire. The stolen one is air. Um, And then there's the joke where he says... Uh, well, you know art, or you look at the brass plaque, yeah, <laughs> and they do an extreme close up, which is also funny because the, like, the art I am familiar with is like a large brass plaque that says the name and the medium and the artist. This literally is just four letters on a piece of brass that say fire, <laughs> and it's so obvious. It's like Pete, you should have seen that fire. It's definitely not the one that's been stolen, and it gave me a really good laugh. And um, Micah liked that because she likes when people who aren't her make fun of Pete. Um, yeah, Which I really like because sometimes it's like a I, only I can make fun of you kind of thing. But if someone else does it, it's wrong. But this is just like, yeah, no, pile on. <laughs> um, and Pete sort of starts to feel self-conscious. Pete says, rich, good looking, likes kids. Who's who's on a date now? And I just wrote, Micah feels seen. <laughs> yes, and this is what I love, is that Micah made the comment about you can't work when you're on a date, and then as soon as Pete sees that she's doing the same thing, he puts it right back to her, and 
It's great. And she immediately gets back to work. She, like, snaps back into focus. Unlike, unlike Pete, who's like, okay, I'll do work so I can go on a date later. She's like, oh, my God, you're right. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, yeah, unlike Pete, who thinks this is all hilarious, because the next thing that happens is that Jeff uh, lists off the elements in the series, rock, wind, fire, and Pete goes like, I love that that band or that song. And it's a great earth, wind, and fire joke that needed to be made, so I'm glad. And then I know you have a note about what happens next when Artie calls. They're talking to Artie, and he says, that sounds like the Native American creation myth or something really broad like that. And I was like, no, there are an unbelievable amount of native cultures and nations and tribes and you can't there's not just one creation myth even if several have a lot in common like i mean that's exactly what we were talking about that pan native cultural homogenization thing it's a big problem and Artie does not do a good job navigating that yes so let's go ahead and insert the clip of dr norwood saying exactly that that he gives some great insight into a few a few different creation myths within the Lenape family, not even within other cultures of Native America more broadly. So clearly it's a big leap on Artie's part to just like connect the elements and think that he has understood something. The um, Northern Lenape, also called the Muncie, that they, uh, an ancient myth that had been recorded and, and was um, often told was uh, that they came up from out of the ground. Uh, another story related to it uh, speaks of the, of the first man and woman actually coming from a tree. What, what all of the um, stories have in common, however, is that ultimately the land itself is on the back of a great turtle. And uh, for the southern uh, Yunami division within the Lenape family, the story of the great turtle is a, it's a, it's a long and involved story, but it, it essentially is that land from the bottom of the sea, some earth from the bottom of the sea, was placed on the back of the turtle and it began to grow. And all of North America is on the back of this turtle. And the people, relating once again to this story of the tree, grew from the back of the turtle and all of the creatures on it. And it's an understanding that the entire uh, land that we live on is living and all the creatures on it are, are related to one another. In, in brief, that's the story. It's far more detailed than that. Yeah. This is a real culture that is being affected of people who are actually alive and living in society today. This isn't something that happened a long time ago or doesn't exist anymore. So I think it's important, more important than normal to set the record straight on what those inaccuracies are. Yes, definitely. And in the way that I think Artie, and it actually, we can read it as the character of Artie being an older white man might not have the kind of awareness um, that other people might. And so, yeah, he is unaware of how damaging it might be to talk about people as if they're all one culture or talk about people as if they don't exist anymore when, of course, you know, the Lenape people are doing all kinds of things and spoke with us just this this year. So, yeah. In a similar vein of jumping wildly to conclusions, Pete also jumps wildly to a conclusion that Jeff Weaver is to blame. 
Um, and he says, are you missing a feather or something else that lets you walk through walls? And I'm like, that that's a big thing to say to someone. And if you're wrong, they're going to think you're insane. Well, that's what I said. I almost wondered because you, you got it on the head. It was so much of a leap that I was like, did Pete just go off to be funny? Um, he's like, are you missing a feather by chance? But the fact that Mr. Weaver becomes super defensive and concerned right away shows us that neither of them are joking. So that's another huge leap is that this guy is aware of the ability for an artifact to make someone walk through walls. Yeah, I made a note of that throughout the whole episode. And I don't know if the, if it was the writing, the directing, or the acting that was poor, but something was just flat out not good there. Like there was no facial expression of surprise or that anything read there was no reaction to the comment just like oh yeah walking through walls we're just going to discuss this as though this is something we talk about every day and i i wish i actually checked because it feels to me like maybe there were some deleted scenes but i do have the dvds and if there were parts that were cut, they were not put onto the DVD. So that's a bummer. But that's what we were talking about earlier in terms of there being so many writers on the project and there might have been network notes. There might have been an earlier draft where things were included and then they got cut. We just don't know. Yes. This has quickly snowballed into uh, you know, a serious situation and then Mr. Weaver calls someone in, LaSalle, Well, Pete immediately recognizes him from the construction site, and I think they draw guns, and that's when Weaver says, no, 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 he works for me, and they sort of of stand down, but they're still like, that doesn't make this less suspicious. Yes, and so this guy is some sort of go-between, or I don't know, almost like a double agent of sorts, who... Pete knows works for Mr. Radford, Radburn also. And Micah now is on board with saying like, that if people are walking through walls, the US government needs to know. And this is where the Secret Service cover works very well. Yeah. Because if you want to assassinate a president, I think walking through walls would be a great way to do it. And I think that their cover is very effective for once right in this moment. I definitely agree. I also think Pete is exceptionally funny in this scene because now that we're just we're just going to go forward and assume that Jeff Weaver has no personality and just accepts anything that is told to him and now believes in all of the mystical things we have just talked about. Uh, I think we should just make that assumption about him going forward because Pete and Micah are like, okay, we're going to need to take this sculpture because obviously it's related to these supernatural things that you definitely believe exist. And instead of being like, what? No, that's insane. They don't exist. He's just like, but no, it's important. He's like, I can protect them myself or something. So he's like, oh, if I'm the next target, I need to protect my stuff. And you're like, wait a second. So he believes that it's magical. He believes that there are people targeting these things. And then my favorite pete moment is that badgie goes badgie what's that badgie badgie says we stay with the sculpture and badgie is just his badge it's so funny and this is where pete acting like he's 12 totally works for me because that sense of humor is really what i enjoy about his character i agree 
Um, you had said, let's just assume that Jeff Weaver has no personality and also believes everything. I would respond, but Jill, he has so much money. Surely money can just buy knowledge of everything, which (laughs) I'm being sarcastic about, but I'm also saying may have been underlying the, the writing of this guy as like a New York mega riches man. Um, because if anyone was going to be able to discover unknown secrets, a person with a lot of time and money would possibly be the person who could do that. And I think later at the end of the episode, we'll have to address this more. But the problem with that is that from all things I can recognize, he is a white man, a rich white man. So the most privileged kind of person in society. And so is he being some sort of quote unquote savior figure? Is he, you know, trying to be more aware and benevolent than that? Is he just a rich guy who accidentally got wrapped up in something? We honestly don't know. Is he just a bad actor who doesn't know how to to make facial expressions? Or again, was there more writing about who this character is that would have made it more clear but didn't come into the episode because of time? So that was just my note. And from there, we move back to the warehouse. And Lena is on the balcony drinking a soda. And she's about to play with Artie's chess set. And Artie is like, no, don't touch it. He's apparently been stuck for a while, like a few weeks or something. It says three months. Three months. Lena uses that and says, yeah, Claudia notices that you've been stuck for a while too. And it seems like she's sort of angling for him to push Claudia in the way that Claudia is pushing. She mentions she needs to be a doer. She needs to be like doing something yeah so she says that you know we saw her speak with claudia claudia is clearly afraid of being alone and now lena is acting on that recognition of claudia's needs by saying claudia needs a home and already says this is not the humane society um lena then says she's not a stray cat which i think the quickness you might miss the actual words there but Artie's resistance, like this is not the Humane Society, is a little off-putting, but Lena keeps pushing him and and maybe it's just Artie being brusque because he's, we know, very invested in Claudia because Lena says she needs an opportunity. Joshua is a researcher, whereas Claudia is a doer. Yeah. And I I think that makes so much sense for both of their characters Um, because if you are in the sciences pursuing like a PhD in some sort of physics, that is honestly a thing that you do. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but generally from the people I know in the sciences, you do those higher degrees for research purposes. Um, if you want to be a doer working in industry, as they say, maybe you want a master's, but you don't need all of that time. I mean, the thing that Joshua was doing was getting grant money and research uh, in order to just find stuff out as opposed to doing actual things in the world. Yeah, which are both equally valid. But I think um, Artie's brusqueness and dismissiveness definitely comes from two things. First of all, he obviously cares a great deal about Claudia and he knows what a dangerous job being 
someone who works in the warehouse is and even when it's not dangerous even when you survive you end up like Artie sort of alone and sad and he doesn't want that for her um but also another source of his anxiety is he says Mrs. Frederick's getting anxious and that she and her brother can't stay at the warehouse and I wonder what exactly the kind of pressure he's getting I think maybe he struck a deal that was like listen I'll monitor them if they seem like a threat or they don't understand the significance of what they're doing then we'll take care of it a different way and if it seems fine then I'll send them on their way and now they're still there and so she's like what's what, what's your decision and I wondered too um so Lena says Artie could pull strings MIT Caltech basically Lena is listing good like science colleges but Artie resists that too, and I think what we need to be aware of is just what Jill said, that there is pressure for Mrs. Frederick, and maybe that pressure is not to send Claudia away, or is to do something super different with Claudia, so all of his reactions are based on what he knows that none of us do. And then everything is cut short as Claudia enters the scene, and just a really great acting moment chemistry moment writing moment happens where she immediately sees that he's there and so now she can show off by doing the move that she's been planning and she starts moving a chess piece and he starts going no 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 and just as he's saying that at the same time she goes yes 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 and moves the chess piece and it's really cute and he and then she just says yep check and he's like oh Oh, and he goes immediately into like a delighted form of being impressed. I I just loved that. I loved it too, because the other thing that I read about this was when Artie looked in at Claudia sitting in the office, first of all, she has a blanket or a poncho. um, She has a blanket wrapped around her and she was kind of sitting with her head down. She was like nodding off. And that's like Artie was wanting her to be working. And Lena said, no, 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 she needs a break. And then as soon as Claudia whisks in and makes this amazing chess move, I thought to myself, and this is just my idea, that she wasn't actually nodding off, but she was deep in thought about the chess game. (laughs) And that she emerged as soon as she figured it out to show Artie. Um, Although I also like that she was just waiting for him to be present so that she could show it. But either way, she emerges in order to be really good at chess which is so cool um because i can play chess but it's really hard and like people who are good at chess mad respect and she doesn't just make the move she says white beats black in nine moves which was awesome and lena smiles really big and is like i like i like this person i just love claudia and lena's dynamic because not that there's anything wrong with micah and lena's dynamic but Mike is always away and Lena's always there. And as far as we've seen her so far, Claudia likes to do the work around the warehouse. It's like a little emerging friendship and I love it. Yes. So does that take us to the van? Yes. My descriptive video services training makes me call it a semi-truck. Oh, <laughs> it probably is. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's a semi-truck because it's got the um, the front. Oh, separate from the back. <laughs> gotcha yeah sorry so we're in a semi-truck and uh they're they've hit a stop sign or something LaSalle is driving and I just want to point this out maybe it was an accident Pete says like well if Chief Leadfoot over there would stop blah 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 and I was like oh hold on a minute using that term in an incorrect or inappropriate way it might have honestly just been Pete 
riffing on the driver, but the fact that there is Native American history in this episode makes me really upset. I was really uncomfortable too. If it was just a normal episode and you called someone chief, that's actually a very American thing to do. Like if you see other people imitating Americans, they'll say, hey chief, the same way that like really bad impressions of British people go, hey governor, like it's just a thing that people associate. But sorry, we've been very clear in this podcast that the writers of this show clearly do research. So I'm not willing to excuse it in this sense as just a mistake when they're dealing so much with native cultures in this episode. Yeah, it's really small, but it's not okay. Oh, we need to mention Pete. There, There's only two seats in the semi-truck. There's the driver's seat and their shotgun. And then there's Pete just with the sculpture in the back of the truck bed. Yes, with with the sculpture and a radio. And he radios, you know, that everything is fine and he was just being shuffled around because of this stop. But it's the worst possible timing because immediately after that, someone in the Native American um, coat leaps into the car and, you know, scuffles with Pete. And it's really scary because the car has just begun moving again, which thank goodness it's not going super fast yet because he gets thrown out of this moving truck and immediately, you know, Micah knows something is wrong when he doesn't radio back. Well, she she sees him sticking out of the side of the truck impossibly okay. through the side mirror and um, she's like, oh my gosh. And so she makes LaSalle stop the truck and then they hop out. Yes, and they hop out and LaSalle's concern is going into the back and looking for the artifact. Micah, not in this moment concerned about the artifact, rushes to her partner and he's not responsive. He's been thrown out of a moving car, then cut to them going to the hospital. And he's still kind of sparkly a little as he's laying there, which I think is important later. But also important, LaSalle tries to get into the back of the truck, but clearly whoever is wearing the cloak, we don't know at this point, has walked through that part of the truck and is driving away. So the artifact thingy is gone. The truck is gone. This is the all hope is lost moment. All hope is lost. The artifact is taken. And Pete is in the hospital. Micah by his side in a chair. And when he wakes up, she says, hey, partner. I wrote that too. And she clearly looks like she's been crying. It's not like I'm going to make an emotional expression. They're like... I know, and I think this is so good if you know her backstory that losing a partner is a huge fear for her, and also she's been growing to love Pete even though he can be annoying, whatever, so she cares about him. And and also, she's seen him get thrown from a moving car before, and she knows like that they're resilient. Like In the first episode, we mm-hmm. see them both take a big beating, and so we know that Whatever happened to him this time is different. And I think even from his glazed over half awake state when he finally wakes up, he he knows he immediately needs to put her at ease. She says, how are you? And he goes, good, uh, sore, need cookies. And she like cracks a smile, like not completely not worried, but like, okay, sense of humor's still there, good. Um, and then he says, I got my molecules rearranged. Which, honestly, it makes sense to me as, like, something that would happen to your body if you get shoved through another solid object. Yes! And Jillian, do you know what rearranges your molecules? 
the transporter beams in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so the beam me up, Scotty. The uh, the beams in Star Trek when you beam up or down off a ship. Obviously, that's the technology of getting rearranged through a you know through a solid surface. So I think safe to say the Sci Fi Channel would be aware of that. Oh, and yeah. also, though. They use it more creatively because it was harmful on his body to go through that. Yeah, and like it, it makes sense that that's why he'd be more sore this time in this situation than in that crash that we saw him in the first time. And I like that because sometimes you see a character go through something impossible and you're like, oh my god, how are you fine? And then they get hurt by the same thing later and you're like, wait a minute. So I think this is a... a more than reasonable excuse than having your like most basic molecular composition messed with would cause more lasting damage yes and i love too that micah also wants to reassure pete because she reveals that even before he passed out he shared that the artifact was a buckskin coat and she's like Artie's doing his thing now like Basically, like, you did good, Pete. Like, don't be disheartened that you lost the artifact because now we know what it is and we're gonna get it. I didn't even notice that. That was sweet. I noticed that Pete noticed Weaver out in the hallway on the phone and was like, well, let's see you doing here and sort of teases Micah. And Micah says... He got you a free multi-point inspection. She, like, refers to him as a car, which I thought was hilarious. I wrote that, too. I I wrote, wait, isn't that what you do for cars? <laughs> so it is what you do. It is. it is what you do for cars. It's a joke. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really sweet and good. And she says he owns the hospital or built the hospital or something. Like, <laughs> I like how it was, like, blah, 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 rich person. Um, but... Unlike Pete, who's always low-key flirting with someone, um, Micah turned off the flirt part of her brain until she was sure Pete was okay enough, and then mentioned, so he asked me out to, like, kind of a dinner in the cafeteria, but I I should stay with you, and he's like, oh my god, go. (laughs) Yeah, the quick banter of, like, but I said no, go no go like Pete and it's so funny because he's glazed over Pete but he's got such a good um like supportive friend face on he's like no you gotta go you gotta go almost like your girlfriend would when you're go you know when a guy asks you out like he is so wanting her to go on the date and then like we talked about earlier when she says like she, she shouldn't go he hints that well you know you should see more about him like for professional reasons, you've got to investigate this guy. And that, he knows, is what will convince her to go. But you know he wants her to go for, like, the personal reasons, you know? So it's perfect. It was so sweet. He says something that I feel like in almost any other context in any other show, I would have found really terrible. But here, I found really endearing. He's like, make sure to smile, because you're pretty when you smile. Which, like, I don't like it. And I don't think any woman likes it when just men tell you to smile. It's pretty terrible. But in this context, I feel like he's sort of loopy and was just like commenting about how he finds Micah kind of pretty and then catches himself. And she's like, wait, what about when I don't smile? He goes, oh, really frightening. And then he immediately like 
is like, oh, no, head injury, nurse, nurse. He's like, <laughs> like, you can't be mad it's at me. It's so cute when he does that. And you know what I actually agree with about this is that, yeah, he's probably on morphine, so he's saying things he wouldn't say. And the writers may have, just because when Micah says, well, what does that make me when I don't smile? It seems to be addressing the common issue of men telling women to smile of like well then what if I what if I don't smile and the fact that like I mean Micah isn't scary and she is always beautiful but the fact that he's like you're kind of terrifying is just acknowledging her power and force and you know she is not someone to be messed with yeah I mean she's mini Mrs. Frederick so she's gonna be terrifying when she's just got her work face on you know yeah as she should be yeah um and as any woman in any profession can and should be when she's acting professional yeah um and then we're back at lena's bnb and josh is packing in his room and claudia enters and he reveals that he is moving to switzerland cern um which Claudia immediately knows means he's going to be smashing atoms, which makes me happy. Because that's where the Large Hadron Collider is, yeah? Yeah, that's what I wrote, is that he says, I got a job offer at CERN, and Claudia knows the Large Hadron Collider, and she knows it's in Switzerland. And, like, I'm sure the audience uh, of this show knows that as well. But, like, that's the dream job. And she's happy and then really sad, and then he does a really good Big Brother thing. And he says, if an interdimensional rift can't make me lose touch, a few thousand miles won't. And she's like, okay, well, good. And then she says a great sister thing with just a great delivery. Like, it was just great acting. The line is, I think I've demonstrated that I will hunt you down, which could be read in a million different ways. But she says it as... I think I've demonstrated that I will hunt you down. Like, not as a a fun throwaway line, but as, like, a semi-threat. Like, I, I just love that she chose threatening as how to read that line. And that's what I will say, um, because now that we're in this episode, we know that Claudia is going to be in more episodes, that she's going to stay at the warehouse at least for a while. And so something they did so well with Claudia is that whether it's, Allison's acting or the writing or something else she is consistent we know who she is from day one like she is brilliant she's sarcastic she's a little dangerous she knows she's a little dangerous she has the soft interior of being a girl who has lost so much and you know grown into this young woman who's like non-traditionally really smart and good at things but like didn't go to college you just know who she is, and Allison Scaliotti, like, knows who she is always. It's not confusing or unclear at any point. And she's so solid in that that she's a, a scene stealer every time. Every time. Um, so then we are back in the warehouse with Lena and Artie. And I think we just need to address the line. We just need to address the line right out front and talk about why it's terrible, because... It's terrible. Yeah, well, I will just say that they're going over, supposedly, Native American creation myths. And, uh... Okay, so Artie suspects uh, they list the Delaware people, which is also a word associated with the Lenape people. Um, Artie suspects that it's the Lenape, and offhandedly he says this, quote, I'm not saying this, who sold Manhattan to the Dutch for $24 of arts and crafts. 
And then Lena questions this, and Artie says something like, you had to be there. She says, that's not a great deal. It's all bad. It's all all so bad. So I don't have the right to speak for Native people, but of course, even without me asking this question, Dr. Norwood addressed it in our interview, I think because this is a commonly held like Euro-American myth of Native people in Manhattan. So I'm going to insert the clip here and make sure everyone knows that this is not only not what happened, but speaks to a larger issue with the way that Native history is told. Because in a lot of schools, it's told through the American um, colonial lens rather than through the lens of the people, the Native people who experienced it. So let's take a listen. The, the old tale about us selling Manhattan is really told from a Western perspective. The fact of the matter is that Traditionally, our people never saw the land as something you could buy or sell because it was owned by the creator. And we possessed it. We were the stewards and trustees of it. But the creator, actually, it all belonged to him. And so when deals were struck for the use of lands, it was with the understanding that we would remain sovereign over it, but we were sharing it with the colonists to be able to live within our territory but with the understanding that that it was still our ter- territory. Obviously, uh, European colonists, when they came, came with a European or Western understanding of land tenure, and they assumed that, you know, what they gave us, which we viewed as honor gifts, indicating that they were going to be in a relationship of sharing they assumed it meant that they owned it and they began to restrict our movement on it, uh, which was never our understanding or our way, and it led to a lot of conflict. Uh, Moreover, that relationship of sharing from our perspective was renewed regularly by uh, gift-giving diplomacy, uh, something that the Europeans didn't understand. But given that it was our land, it should have been our ways that were adopted, but they were not. And they move forward, and then they discuss a creation myth that they believe corresponds to the artifact that, again, I want to stress, does not correspond to an actual Lenape creation myth. It does resemble a story, but not one of the more prevalent creation myth stories. Yes. There's another thing to address with Dr. Norwood here where... It is a specifically a story and the like fan wiki page for this episode of Warehouse 13 cites a story called The Man They Cannot Hold. The story itself, the name of the story, is recorded from the uh, early 1900s by a Lenape um, uh, writer, historian. His name is uh, uh, Richard Adams. And uh, I believe he was from the Bartlesville, Oklahoma community. He wrote several books, relatively brief, recording stories, recording certain values, and also basically talking about what was happening to the Lenape people at that time in, uh, in and around Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And one of the stories that he preserved uh, is in his 1905 book, Legends of the Delaware Indians and in Picture Writing, and and it is the the 
the alternate name is the man they cannot hold. Now, there are two things about this story. One is, I don't know how ancient it is, because some of the writings that Richard Adams put in his book represented the Delaware people in that area at that time. He made no claim to them being particularly ancient. They may have been derived during the travels west or even once they settled in Oklahoma. There's no particular date associated with the story other than the fact that we know that it at least hails from uh, to the end of the 19th, very early 20th century. But it has nothing to do with what you're describing with the rock and invisibility and anything like that. Which just goes to show the sort of lack of how do I what do I say the lack of sensitivity the, lack of care yeah the lack of care that goes into this um, writing and I don't know what the source is who said it's from the man they cannot hold again I got this from a fan wiki um, but the thing that I will include in here and also preface is that Dr. Norwood is extremely skeptical about the idea of a Native American artifact making someone able to walk through walls. I'm unfamiliar. I can't say there is no story that doesn't have invisibility involved with the rock, because certainly I don't know every Lenape story that's out there. But I'm unfamiliar with that, and it sounds more like what I've heard about Harry Potter than, <laughs> um, you know, the... the, the the Lenape stories that are older. Um, so he says it sounds like Harry Potter, which makes me want to laugh. But actually, if you think about it, imagine someone taking your family's stories and just making like a Harry Potter mashup out of them. Something that's sacred and important to you. It's very irreverent and not okay the way that they have, what he says, misappropriated this story. And, you know, I, I know that um, often there is literary license taken when, when uh, things are, you know, put, put in shows or plays or whatever. But uh, some of the, the more traditional stories that we have, they're considered particularly special to us, and they're the property of the Lenape communities. Uh, this particular story, I think, may be unique to Bartlesville. I'm not sure, but just looking at it and some of the elements within it and having the feeling that it probably does not date from much longer before the time period that Adams wrote it down. Um, it probably is, is, is one that, that is, is part of their heritage out there. And you don't want to mess with those things. The use of the story and changing it and then still using the name of it as it was uh, written down in, in, according to Richard Adams, but changing so many of the details uh, is cultural misappropriation. Yeah, I completely validate and agree with all of that. It's really upsetting in a show that clearly does its research on so many things that it obviously didn't do any research on this. It thought, this is a story about some old culture and didn't connect it to the fact that it's related to a culture of people who still exist today. So on that very important note, we're going to pause for now and split the episode into two parts. Now the reasons are twofold. First, because the file is going to be big and I want everyone to be able to easily download it, so that'll make it easier for us. 
but second because I want to do something that we don't normally do but actually release the full interview with Dr. John Norwood at the end of the second half. So basically we have about 40 minutes left of um, Podcast 13 content and then at the end I will provide an introduction with the complete interview. And to me that's really important to do especially with this episode because the episode culturally misappropriates, it does something very damaging, but the only silver lining is that we have a chance to learn from that mistake by educating ourselves and listening to the voices that were misrepresented. And we have the great privilege of having had someone speak to us who could, you know, do that for us. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you just downloaded this at midnight, you're probably going to have to wait about 24 hours for part two. But if you're downloading midday Tuesday, um, it'll be there by Wednesday. So we will have a new episode next week. We're not waiting that long. We know how much you look forward to each new show. But thank you again for your time and thoughtful listening. And we will see you next time, agents.